you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting, with my garment and my cloak torn, and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favour has been shown by the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery, for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering, to take possession of it, is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, Neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again? 
and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant, nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped, as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Let's pray, everyone, as we come to God's Word. Father, we pray uh, this morning that as we gather in this place, that your Holy Spirit would fall on each and every one of us, that as your Word is read and as I seek now to, to open it, that you would show us who you are, that you would break uh, through all the crusts that we, we sometimes harden our hearts with. And Lord, that you would speak deep into our heart and deep into our church. And we pray that you'd do this for your glory's sake. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Well, there's a a particular kind of pain that we can experience, isn't it? And I, I think maybe it's in some ways the worst kind of pain we can experience. And it's this. It's when we are confronted with the gulf between who we ought to be and who we really are. Who we ought to be and who we really are. Have you experienced that pain? I have. There was an occasion when I was 20 years old and and I was training to be an officer in the Australian Army and I was called up before uh, one of the senior officers and I was facing disciplinary procedures against me for bullying. As I stood at attention before his desk, I was, I was saying, this is unjust, it's unfair, I've done nothing wrong, and I was letting his rebuke just wash over me. I'll never forget he paused, and he looked me straight in the eye, and he said, Andrew, I know that you say you're a Christian, Do you think your behavior is like that of the Lord Jesus? This guy's not a Christian, but in that moment, he highlighted the gulf between who I said I was and who I, who I should be and who I actually was, and in that moment, I, I, it, it undid me. The tears came because I saw the reality of what he had said. It was devastating. Have you experienced that? I think most of us have. The gulf between who we say we are or who we ought to be and who we really are. But, but what is even perhaps more devastating than when we think about it in individual terms is when we think about it in corporate terms. When there's a gulf between who the church is, who it ought to be, rather, and what it actually is. Let's look at what the church of God is described as in the Bible. It's described as the bride of Jesus without wrinkle, spot, or blemish. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 says this, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. 
For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's who the church is. That's That's who it ought to be. And yet what happens with the royal commission into child abuse? What happens when the reality is exposed and brought to life and we see precious little ones abused and damaged, sometimes by the very church leaders who are placed under authority by God to see to their protection? What about that? What about the stories of abuse and immorality, sometimes in churches that we admire and in leaders that we admire who are brought to light? The gulf between who we should be and who we are as a church community becomes apparent and the result is devastating, isn't it? Well, this morning we're going to examine this problem. And we're going to examine it through the lens of Ezra as he confronted it long ago in these chapters we just heard read. And then we're going to finish our time together by looking at the solution to it. So firstly, the problem, and as chapter 9 opens and the problem is introduced, it's 583 BC. It's now five months since Ezra first came back. If you were here last week, you know the wonderful hand of God was on him. Ezra got a team together, a large group of people. They made the journey four months from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Things are happening. It's exciting. It's wonderful. It's five months now since that moment when Ezra entered Jerusalem, and things have been going really well. Ezra's been studying the Word, he's been doing the Word, he's been preaching the Word. Things have been going really well until he gets the email in his inbox. Subject, something you need to know. Content, verse 2, For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands, and in this faithful faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. These people come to Ezra and they give him information that he didn't know. They go, look, you need to know. A bunch of leaders of God's people and, and a, a whole bunch of God's people have divorced often their Jewish wives and have taken wives from the people around them. You need to know they're mixing the holy race. Now, this very fact can, can confront us like a slap in the face, can't it? A holy race? Is God somehow racist? He's got problems with racial intermarriage? Uh, this is one of the occasions in God's Word where we need to pause and, and we need to actually wait on this. We need to ask the questions because it should raise questions with us. If it, do, if it doesn't, we're probably not really listening to what is being said and what is happening. It, this, is, this is a very difficult spot in Scripture in some ways. This is a confronting chapter. We need to wrestle with it. We need to pause. We need to think about the context. And the context is this. In the time of Ezra, racial purity and religious purity were virtually the same thing. In the Old Testament times, racial purity and religious purity were the same things. And the reason is that in the Old Testament, God chooses out a single nation from all the nations on the earth. He chooses out Abraham, and then, then through Moses, he sets aside this nation, this, the people of Israel, and he gives them a specific and wonderful responsibility. This is a nation who will know God. 
This people, this race of people will know God in a way that the rest of the nations do not. And as they know God and as they experience God's kindness and his blessing, as they live under his authority, the rest of the world will look and they'll see the beauty of God. And they'll be drawn to Israel like a light, like a city on a hill, drawn to them. And when that work works in the Old Testament, it's beautiful. You see, for example, Ruth, the Moabitess, or you see Rahab, the inhabitant of Jericho. You see these, these two women and, and others in Scripture as well who see God revealed in his people and they go, I want in, and the doors are wide open for them. But God's people were a chosen nation. And the danger that always confronted God's people as a chosen nation, different from all of the other nations, was that over time, they would slip. That their distinctiveness would be diluted. That their, their worship of the pure, their pure worship of the living, loving God would become mixed up with those living around them and among them who did not know this God and who worshipped other idols. And the most obvious way that this would happen was through intermarriage. Uh, we know what it is like when two families come together and are joined in marriage. We, those of us who are married, we know what it is like when we marry someone, like we become intimately involved, not just physically, but spiritually, emotionally with that person, we are changed by who we marry. And the great threat to the distinctiveness of God's people is intermarriage. And it's why in the Old Testament we see time and again, God speaking to his chosen people saying, don't intermarry with them. Don't do it. If you do, you will dilute my work in the world through my special nation. You'll bring judgment on yourselves and you will harm dreadfully the mission that I have for the world. Uh, important to note here that what at stake is not so much racial purity as we would understand it, like biology, ethnicity. What is at stake, even in the Old Testament, is the purity of worship. Uh, listen, listen again to how Ezra describes it when he prays in, verse, in verses 10 and 12, which we just heard read. Listen to, how, listen to how he describes it. And now, O our God, what will we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of is a land impure, with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that they filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, notice, therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. You see, it's not primarily about race and ethnicity. God's holy nation in the Old Testament, the great danger it faces is pollution and dilution and corruption of worship by becoming like those who are around them. The Old Testament people of God would remain racially pure to ensure the purity of God's saving mission to the world that he loves. That's Old Testament. This racial emphasis of, of racial purity is not the same 
for us as New Testament people of God. If you're a Christian, then you are part of the longest established, most enduring, most glorious multiracial community on planet Earth. When Jesus comes, the narrative around race in the Scripture changes completely. Now, the Jewish race is not abandoned, as, as some people will falsely claim. They oh, no, no, Jewish race doesn't matter anymore. Their history in God's plan, that's not true. The Jewish people continue to matter. And, and Romans chapter 9 and 11 explains the, how they continue to matter. It talks about uh, the imagery of an olive tree. You could, you could replace it with any kind of fruit tree, really. But the olive tree, it speaks about that, that, that the people of Israel... Ethnic Israel, they're the pure olive branch. They're the ones who are rooted on the prophets. They're the ones who are God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, um, Moses, the people of the prophets and the word, people of Ezra. These are the true olive branch. But then it talks about when when Jesus comes, he doesn't just get rid of the whole olive tree and and forget our Jewish people don't matter anymore. What he does is he grafts the, the Gentiles, that's everybody else, that's us, most of us, he grafts us into the original olive branch. We are welcomed in to the people of God, and that welcome is no longer based now on racial or ethnic identity. Entrance into the kingdom of God is purely through relationship with Jesus. Jew and Gentile, those races continue to exist. They're not unimportant, but what matters in terms of welcoming into God's community is faith in Jesus. For that purpose, race is irrelevant. God's mission to the world is now, it's not showcased through a distinctive ethnic people as it was in the Old Testament, the Jewish people. God's witness and mission to the world is now showcased through you and through me, a beautiful multi-ethnic community that showcases God's saving work and the distinctiveness of who he is to a world that doesn't know him. That's what is at stake here. In fact, I think it's actually an argument that could be a very strong case can be made that the more ethnically diverse an individual church community is, the more faithful it is being to the mission of God, proclaiming the beauty and the truth and the relevance of Jesus. Uh, conversely, a Christian community where racism is alive and well is a community that doesn't show the purity of God and who he is. And we can think of situations where churches have become corrupt in in parts of the world throughout history with racism. And we can think actually of our own example in Australia. Um, Some years ago, I read a a really impacting book for me. It was called The Lamb Enters the Dreaming. Anyone else read that book? I don't think it's a bestseller. No, I think I'm the only one. It's a fantastic book. It's written by a non-Christian academic, I think at Melbourne University, and, and he is going back to the primary original sources looking at the interaction of Christianity with the indigenous peoples, especially in Victoria. And his conclusions are fascinating. I recommend this book. I really enjoyed it, actually. Um, he, he looks at the original Christians coming into Australia, and these Christians were motivated by the truth of Scripture. They went, Aboriginal, indigenous, white, doesn't matter, we're all one blood. All of us are one blood. We are all created in the image of God, therefore, we should treat the indigenous inhabitants and we should treat, especially within the church, without distinction, we're all one blood. Now, that was the theory, you might say, not always was it applied in practice. Remember, there's a a gulf sometimes. 
But that was what the Christians believed overwhelmingly, and they acted on it. And early on in the history of Victoria's colony, there were moves to have Aboriginal bishops within, within church nominations. There's not real problems with that by anybody, as long as they were only overseeing Aboriginal congregations. That was okay. But when the move was to actually we're going to have Aboriginal bishops who will, who will have authority over mixed congregations and, and white congregations... Well, that's a problem. And this, this author, as I said, is not a Christian. He points out that the most voracious opposition to this came from the progressives. And it came from the Argus, which is today's Melbourne age. And, uh, and the Argus wrote viciously against uh, Christians who were reactionaries and, and they, they, were, they, were, they were failing to see that the world would move on. And we, knew, we know now about eugenics. We know about Darwinian selection. We know now that the, the purity of races is what matters. And they, they criticized the church. And the church's corruption in worship was not that it was, it was having a multi-ethnic, not having Aboriginal bishops. That wasn't the corruption. The corruption came when the church became deluded by the society around it and removed Aboriginal bishops and refused to have any more ordained for decades. Why? Because they corrupted their worship by taking on what was around them. That is what the problem is for, for our today. It, it's not that we have to say maintain some sort of racial purity. It's when we allow the world around us to corrupt the distinctiveness of the Christian faith. Now, obvious question. What might that problem look like for us today? Think about it. What might be areas in which we are tempted to dilute the distinctiveness of the Christian faith and message? To dilute it, to compromise it, and to make it like the peoples in which we live around. Or what, what, what is it? Now, I suspect that a number of you already think and know where you think I'm going to go. Well, I think there's two ways. And I'm going to start with one I think is the most important one and the biggest one, and it's this. You ready? This might surprise some of you. Some of you are probably not going to like this. But as I pray about it, I think it's true, and it's this. It's a wholesale and uncritical adoption of a capitalist system. You hear me say that? I think that's a problem. I think we live in a capitalist society. We live in a society that has money as its God. Just look at the election narrative. Money, 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 money. More money. You need money. Governments give us money. Whether it's the left, give us money because we need these social problems, or the right, give us money because we want less taxation. We, whatever it is, we have a society and a capitalist economy, which is not all bad, but it focuses on money, money, money. And you know what? How often are we as a church deluded by a wholesale and uncritical acceptance of a capitalism that we live and breathe? And, and think about this. Are we distinct as Christians in the way we use our money? Are we distinct? Do people look at Christians and go, you guys are so different in the way you, everyone else is living for their money, but you Christians are completely different. You're modeling the generosity of Jesus. You're using money, but you're not worshiping it like everybody else. 
You're holding your money lightly. Is that what we, our own personal experience of the Christian faith is? Is that what the Christian experience of our church is? Are we radically different to the society in which we live in the way that we look and use and treat and think about money? Are we? Or are we functionally like everyone else? Has our worship been polluted because we say we worship God and we, we want to know Jesus and make Jesus known, but we actually worship money. Is, to what extent is that the case? It, what extent is that the case in your life? Let's say at the end of the service, I said to you, all right, everybody, there's two doors. This door, there's a sign over that door which says, entry into the kingdom of God, brackets, you must give every dollar that you have. And on this door, it's like, entry into hell, brackets, but you can keep your money now. Two doors. And at the end of the service, you are going to choose one or the other. You can either walk through that door and give control of every dollar that you have and enter the kingdom of God, or you're going to walk through that door and you're going to enjoy your money and worship your money and end up where it's going to take you. In hell. And you say, Andrew, that is just so stark and so blank and so unrealistic. No, it's not. Why is it that that concerns us to think that right now, as you you swipe a credit card, as you leave that door, and every single dollar you have goes? Why is that so hard for us in the West? Why does the thought of losing our money go so deep into our souls? Why are some of us cringing right now? Look at your bank balance. Look at the way you spend your money. Does it reflect? Is it exactly the same as everybody else functionally, aside from a little tidbit here and there, a little leftover thrown to God and to others? Because you know what? The reality of that door is the reality for every single Christian. Have you thought about it? So, oh, but but Jesus, that was only the rich young man. He said he had to leave everything if he was going to enter the kingdom. No, it's not. All of us. Yes, we're not often... Rarely are we called to give every single cent away in the moment, but we are called to give every single cent, every single dollar into the authority of God's kingdom. That's fundamental biblical truth, people. We live in a culture and a world that says money is your God and you can have God off to the side, just feed him a little bit of scraps. But the biblical witness is when you come and you enter the kingdom of God, you are fundamentally changed. You worship a real, true, living God, and he demands every cent that you have. It's not yours. It's his. And if he requires every cent that you have literally to be given, then you give it. But how often do we actually functionally act as if we're going and we're, served, we're going through that door? We're saying, I've got my money and it's mine and I'll give a little bit, but it's mine. Can't love both. You can love, try and love one or the other. You, only, you can't love them both at the same time. Money is, and materialism away is a way I, I feel infiltrates our hearts. My heart, your heart, our church. That's one way. And yes, you know where I'm going with the second and it's so obvious I hardly even need to say this. Are we not influenced by the sexuality of our culture? By the way that the culture has moved and shifted, are we not also, as God's people, tempted to dilute the purity of our worship and our faith to be like everybody else around us? 
to be more acceptable, to be seen as nicely, to get well reported on, to, to be able to say to our neighbours, and that's a church community, as individuals, are we not also tempted to this? I think of the last five, six, seven decades of the church, there are men and women who, who will sleep together before they're married and think nothing of it. Oh, God doesn't care. The Bible calls it fornication. But that's not a big deal. We're going to get married anyway. Or it's not, it's not really that important. You know, God's a forgiving God. It doesn't matter if I sleep with someone who's not my spouse. That's infiltrated the church, hasn't it? The purity of worship that says the way we use our bodies is a reflection of what is actually going on in our souls and we can tell ourselves that we're okay with that. We're okay with that for our children. We're okay with that for our grandchildren. We're, we're okay with that for our own life, body. That is a corruption. That's becoming like everyone around us. And then we think more specifically, of course, of the whole thing of a, the, the lesbian, bisexual, gay, transsexual, queer. It's no problem. The world has changed, and we just need, need to be loving and accepting and, and tolerating. They're the Christian leaders and the church denominations that say, well, there's no problem with, with that kind of thing. You, you just, you just got you to gotta, gotta blow with the wind. The culture's shifting. If we're going to win and reach everyone for the gospel, we've got to show that we're, we're like them on this. Otherwise, they won't give us an ear. They won't listen. It'll damage our mission. No, it won't. God's people have always been distinctive. When we dilute our faith and we incorporate bits around in the culture in it and we water it down, in the end, we have nothing to give to anybody. Just you pick your church, your pick of liberal denominations where they go, we just want to win other people to Christ, so we water everything else down. What happens? It kills the church. Uh, is it that we're suddenly seeing something which millennia of Christians have missed in God's word? We're suddenly seeing, actually, God has always been all right with this. Millions of Christians over thousands of years just got it completely wrong, and we've suddenly discovered, is that what has happened to the church, or is it that we have been influenced to dilute our faith? Is that we've been influenced to be compromised by those around us. Instead of our worship influencing the world, our worship has been influenced by the world. There's a devastating gap between who we say we are and who we really are. And it's a problem. It's a problem for Ezra, and it's a problem for us. That's the problem we see in Ezra chapter 9. Let's now switch and pivot, and let's look at the solution. And the solution begins with seeing what is really there and grieving it. Verse 3, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard, and I sat appalled. And then Ezra fasts for the second time in two chapters. Last chapter, it was for God's protection. Now, it is in mourning and grief at the awful gulf that has been revealed. No spin. No, like, minimization, no rationalization. Ezra looks at it what it is, he calls it what it is, and he grieves. Now, I wonder, I can only speak for myself, but maybe you have this. I find that when I see the dilution of God's church, 
I see the world coming in and, and deluding. I, I have two things happen. I, I get angry and then I get depressed. <laughs> Ezra doesn't do either of those. Ezra grieves. His heart is broken. And, and then he does a wonderful thing. I don't know if you noticed that. He owns it. He sees the gulf and he owns it. In, in that prayer, which we heard read 6 to 15, Ezra frankly acknowledges what has happened in the past. He acknowledges all the problems that have come from it. He says he blushes in verse 6 and he's ashamed. He comes before God and he won't even look at God because the gulf is so vast and the pollution is so bad. But Ezra hasn't done any of this. Ezra's been a guy whose heart's been pure. He's, he's, he's studying the word, he's doing the word, he's preaching the word, not perfectly, but that's the trajectory of his life. And yet Ezra looks at the situation his people faces and he owns it. Do you notice that? He owns it. Instead of saying, they have sinned. The liberal Christians have done this. They have incorporated. They're living for money. Da, 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 and I'm not. Like the tax collector in the temple, remember that? Oh God, thank you, I'm not like other men. Ezra comes before God and he goes, I've done this. He owns it on behalf of his people. He uses inclusive language. No spin, no sugar coating. He gives it frankly to God. And this is still so much of our solution to the problem. No spin. Look at it as it is. Be grieved by God. Own it. And confess it. Confess it to God as an individual. When, when, the, when your gulf of your life is revealed, what do we do? We, we own it. In that moment before that commanding officer, it hit me, he was right. And I had to own it. And it devastated me. And I spent the next minutes, actually, he sent me away and I, and I walked, did laps around the parade ground, bawling my eyes out, going, God, this is right. I'm so sorry. But that's the, that's the solution. It's not like some therapeutic thing where, oh, you just feel better and let's go and watch a movie together or let's just pretend it doesn't exist. Let's just do, no, we own it. And we come before God, frankly, as it is, and we ask for his forgiveness. That's what Ezra does. And what I want to see now is, do you notice what happens when he does it? It's contagious. Do you notice that? Verse 4, then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithful, faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. So Ezra's there, he's pulled out his hair and his beard, he's mourning, he's fasting, he's praying, and people start to gather around him. This is not spin. This is not like his, his political advisor said, look, really show grief and that'll, that'll win people to your cause. He, his heart is changed. And then the movement grows, 10 verse 1. And while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. It's contagious. Ezra's looking at the way things really are. He sees the gulf, and he comes before God, and he pleads for God's forgiveness, and the people notice people's hearts start to waken up. It's how revival always starts. 
Not by minimizing the gulf between who we say we are and who we really are. It's by acknowledging the gulf, getting on our knees before God, asking for his move of of power in our hearts, and then it starts. Then it changes. We don't need bells and whistles and the latest things and, hey, let's get the city on a hill smoke machine pumping. We need an authentic owning of where we are, a repentance before God, a confession of sin. That's contagious. That changes things. And as we do it, we need to remember who God is. And I love, love these verses. Chapter 10, verse 2 and 4. We didn't read them, so listen to this. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We've broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Listen to this. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let's make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it's your task and we're with you. Be strong and do it. See, God raises up Ezra, a man of the word, a man of the cloth, if you like, someone in full-time Christian ministry, and then he puts his hand on a Jeconiah. Jeconiah, who's not a religious guy, he's not in the ministry, and God moves on the hand of Jeconiah. And Jeconiah says, let's make a, a covenant with God. Now, let's look at Jeconiah. I've got a picture of a Jeconiah for you here. Where is she? There she is. <laughs> now, you, you might know this woman. I've never met her either, surprisingly, because she lived in the 1700s. Um, her name is Selena Huntington. Anyone heard of Selena Huntington? Yeah, few of you have. This woman is a Jeconiah. So she was converted in the early stages of the Great Awakening that took place in England and America. She, she was in England, and she went to a meeting. She heard John Wesley explaining the truths of the gospel, explaining England was in a bad state at that time. Probably worse than it is now, and Australia is now in many ways. And, and as John Wesley preached, she was converted and she became the Jeconiah of her age. And if you read the accounts of the Great Awakening, she comes up over and over and over again. She was a huge encouragement to George Whitfield and John Wesley in their ministry. She was constantly encouraged. She was creating opportunities for them to speak to aristocracy, to be able to, to get into the sort of circles which she moved in. And even more than that, she bankrolled it. $40 million in, the, in today's dollars she poured in to the work of awakening and revival that continues to impact the Western world to this day. There's a Jeconiah. That's what we need. Not only, we don't need just Ezra's proclaiming the truth of God. We need, we need Jeconiah's, people in business, people in secular occupations, people with, who, who are hearts are moved by God and influence the world in which they live as well. They go hand in hand with each other. Well, finally, there's a painful action to be taken. Uh, We're told that women from other nations and their children are divorced and they're sent back to their families. And the end of it all, the end of the book of Ezra, is this. Chapter 10, verse 9. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. 
It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. The needed action is taken, but the consequences are mixed and they're painful. God's people sitting in the pouring rain, shivering, weeping, broken. Uh, To take the needful action, to maintain the purity of worship for our own hearts, for the hearts of our churches is always painful. Uh, One of my really good friends, we prayed together every week for 16 years, a guy called Mark and his wife Pip. Many of you will will know these people. They, They ministered in Geelong for many years. Their church in, in New Zealand, um, healthy big church, the, the denomination of which they were part in New Zealand, uh, refused to acknowledge the biblical distinctiveness and the purity of worship, and it made a formal decision to bless what God calls sin. To say that homosexuality is a good thing when God calls it sin. And that's, as J.I. Packer once said, is the definition of heresy. To call something good that God calls sin, that's heresy. He and his wife left that church where he was the senior minister and they began a new church. It's been painful. There's been a mixed response. Trying to rent spaces and and be able to try to start again with a small group of people with hardly any finances, with, with ruptured relationships, it's painful. It's, it hurts. It, it's, it's always mixed. I can think of a number of cases, but one in particular in the early years of our church. A great couple in our church, you know, they were, they were serving, they were giving that heart for the poor and the marginalized. Um, they, were, they were involved in the life of the church in a real way. And they said, oh, would you come over? We'd love to have a chat about something. So I went. We, 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 they'd, we'd had meals before. They were close and while we were sharing a meal together, uh, the couple said, look, we love this church, but we would like you to consider being more open towards the changes in our society around sexuality. And as I probed, I said, like, we don't think it's a sin, and we don't think you should say that it's a sin, and if you continue, then we will have to leave. Eventually, they left. It still hurts. Eight years down the track, it still hurts. There's still a mixed response. It's still painful. Hard actions taken by God's people for the purity of God's worship are painful. They're mixed. Sometimes you can do the right thing and you can shiver in the rain, both from your faithfulness to the word of God, but also because the rain is cold and you're human. And you want people to like you. And so you shiver. All right, let's finish. Ezra tells it as it is. And it's not pretty. All that began so promising in Ezra 1 ends 85 years later with that shivering scene of misery. There's still a vast gulf between who the people of God should be and who they really are. It's all a bit of an anticlimax. 
And actually, that's still the, even though we're on the other side of the cross, it's still the same for us today. Who you say you are and who you really are is anticlimactic. Who, are, who your church is and who your church would like to be and should be is still an anticlimax. This is, uh, this is your plan for your life versus God's plan for your life. <laughs> Isn't that true? And, and God is faithful. The God we worship is the God who forgives sin. And when those times when we drift from him and we turn away from him and we corrupt our worship, God is faithful. And if we will humble ourselves and come back to him, he can forgive everything, no matter what it is. And he loves to do that. But finally, as we end, Ezra, we need to realize something about the world in which we live. Uh, Peter Adam once said to me, he said, Andrew, every church, every Christian institution, every Christian school, every human heart will always and inevitably drift towards compromise with the world in which it lives. He said, that is the default status of every human heart and every Christian institution. It's always been this way. And it's devastating when it happens. But we need to be aware of it. That is the default condition of my heart and your heart. And there will come a day when it will never happen again. Oh, how I long for that day. When our worship is pure. When who we say we are and who we are are the same thing. When before God we worship with, with hearts on fire, in purity and love. When the church is indeed the rink, the spotless bride without blemish or any kind of disfiguring compromise. It's going to happen. And I can't wait for it, but we're not there yet. And in that period until we are, our job as God's people is to fight for purity in our own hearts and worship. To love God and to love the people of his word with all our heart. And as a church, it's the same thing. To lovingly, graciously fight for our purity of worship in a world that wants us to assimilate and to do it because we fix our eyes on knowing Jesus and making him known. So Jesus is going to come up, we're going to pray, we're going to close out our time. Our Father, we need to repent, don't we? Our hearts are compromised, we love money, we half-heartedly worship you, we live for other things in our lives as if they really matter and you are just somehow second place, right down the list of our priorities. We show you that in the way we use our time and our money. Our commitment to worshipping together with God's people, to encouraging the weak and building up those who are struggling. Father, we need to repent and we do it this morning. We own it, Lord. We ask your forgiveness. And we, we ask forgiveness for the church, particularly in the West, compromised, swaying to the cultural, dancing to the cultural tune. Father, we ask that you would give us the, the, the winsomeness to stand unyielding on the truth of the gospel, on the love of Jesus and the truth of how we are created. But to do it all with humility, to do it all, not in anger or bitterness or trying to flex our muscle, but in dependence on you. And we ask these things this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, 
or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.